in a press release dated the 21st of July 2018. The Religious Society of Friends in Ireland, the so-called Quakers, announced that they had agreed to the holding of same-sex marriages in Quaker meeting places. That made them, and the liberal, non-subscribing Presbyterians, the only two religious denominations on the island of Ireland to approve of homosexual marriages. So I've been having a quick look at what Quakers believe, and since Quakers get quite a good press in the mainstream media, unlike conservative believers, and since many of us will probably never actually meet one, let's ask the question, is the Religious Society of Friends a Christian denomination? Let's start in the 17th century. There's a strange incident in the life of the Covenanter Alexander Peden that happened when he was sheltering from persecution in County Antrim. Temporarily lodging overnight at the home of a Quaker, Peden decided to accompany the man to a meeting. The Quaker agreed that he could come, just as long as he remained silent. At the meeting house, a number of Quakers were gathered, sitting in silence as was their custom. A raven came down from the open loft above them and sat on the head of one of the attendees. The man jumped to his feet, shouting so violently that foam flew from his mouth. This happened again when the raven landed on the head of a second man. Peden said to his companion, Do you not see? Will you not deny thon afterwards? The man pleaded with him to be silent, but the raven went to a third man and a similar reaction occurred. On the way home, Peden said to his host, I always thought that there was devilry among you, but I never thought that he did appear visibly among you till now I have seen it. Oh, for the Lord's sake, quit this way and flee to the Lord Jesus, in whom there is redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of all your iniquities. The poor man fell to his knees weeping, confessing that the devil had indeed come among the Quakers that night and yielding his heart to the Lord in repentance. He never returned to the Quaker meeting, and remained a committed Christian until he went to meet his Lord. Well, Peden had no time for the Quakers, and neither had many of the Reformed and Calvinistic churchmen of that day. I'm sure the feeling was mutual, for the Quakers then, and to some extent now, had declared that any man who sought or engaged in the paid ministry, even if they were educated and ordained to it, were deceivers and not true ministers of the gospel. You're listening to the Semper Reformata podcast with Bob McAvoy. Let's do some history. George Fox was the founder of the 
religious society of Friends, or the Quakers as they became known. They had arrived in Ireland in 1654 when they began worshipping at the home of a Mr. William Edmondson in Lurgan. They spread across the island and held their first formal meeting in Mount Malik and Ross Common in 1659. The movement spread further and grew numerically when George Fox, the founder of the Quakers, came to Ireland in 1669 and William Penn, he of Pennsylvania, became a convinced Quaker in court. At that time, the Quaker presence was, and perhaps to a lesser extent still is, generally beneficial to the island of Ireland. Their ethos of doing good whenever possible led them to be a positive influence on Irish society in those early days. Quaker businesses were good employers. The village of Bessbrook near Newry was built by the Richardsons, mill owners and Quakers, to be a model village for their workers, mirroring the village of Bourneville in England, built by the Cadbury family, also Quakers. Bessbrook was to be a model village. It was designed to have no pub and no pawn shop and no need of any police station. Other Quaker firms included Jacob's Biscuits, the home of the famous Cream Crackers, and of course there was Bewley's, the famous Dublin Tea and Coffee Houses. The Quaker Victor Bewley in the 1960s did much charity work among the Irish travelling community, and Quakers built schools and hospitals and nursing homes, and worked to alleviate hunger during the Great Irish Potato Famine. And although they refused to fight during the two world wars, they formed the Friends Ambulance Unit, and their form of service was to save lives and tend the wounded. But wait, because good works don't get a sinner to heaven. So do the Quakers believe in salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as the Bible teaches? It's hard to pin down Quaker beliefs. Quakers don't believe in creeds. I suppose the nearest the Quakers ever came to an objective statement of belief would be the 15 propositions of Robert Barclay, drawn up in 1678, containing the founding principles of the movement. Barclay is described in Henry Bettinson's book, Documents of the Christian Faith, as being an educated disciple of George Fox. It would be too difficult for us to go through the entire work in this one short podcast. Let's just get an idea of what the document teaches. Well, Barclay's first proposition deals with what he calls the true foundation of knowledge. Human happiness is knowing God, or probably rather the true knowledge of God. Now that's important. Salvation for the Quakers is by knowledge of God. So how is this knowledge attained? In proposition two, Barclay deals with the doctrine of revelation. Only the Son has knowledge of the Father, he says, 
and the Holy Spirit reveals the Son in and to us. It is only by the Holy Spirit's testimony, therefore, that God can be known. But how does the Holy Spirit reveal God to us? Barclay quotes spiritual revelation in the Old Testament and in the apostolic age pointing to audible voices and appearances and dreams and what he calls inward objective manifestations of the heart, which in itself seems to me to be a bit of an oxymoron. How can anything inward in the heart be at the same time objective? Well, you can immediately see that Barclay's idea of revelation of God gaining knowledge by dreams and visions and appearances and so on, bears very little resemblance to the Protestant understanding of God having finally revealed himself to us in his written objective word in the canon of Scripture. In fact, Barclay's suppositions are more akin to Gnosticism, with its revealed knowledge, or perhaps Mormonism, where there is an emphasis on the personal testimony, the burning in the bosom that convinces the latter-day saint that he is, in his own mind, on the right path. Barclay's doctrine of revelation reflects George Fox's own enlightenment, for Fox himself testified that he had been spoken to by an audible voice, which told him, There is one, even Jesus Christ, that can speak to thy condition. It became Fox's opinion that Christ would speak directly without an intermediary, to those who sought him with like-minded seekers. And Fox later reported in his journal, various personal religious experiences or direct revelations, which he called openings, that corrected in his opinion the beliefs of Orthodox Christianity. And that's another similarity with Mormonism and the alleged experiences of their false prophet, Joseph Smith. Now this reliance upon personal direct revelation from God through the Holy Spirit is the third proposition in Barclay's book. Regarding the scriptures, Barclay clearly believes that the Bible is only a declaration of the true foundation of truth and knowledge that is God himself, and therefore cannot ever be considered as the principal ground of truth and knowledge, nor the sole rule of faith and conduct. The scriptures are, said Barclay, a secondary rule. Fox, too, had placed the God-given inner light, so-called inspiration, above creeds and scripture, and regarded personal experience as a true source of authority. In his journal he wrote, These things I did not see by the help of man, nor by the letter, though they are written in the letter, but I saw them in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by his immediate spirit and powers, as did the holy men of God, by whom the holy scriptures were written. So he places his reception of revelation squarely on a par with that of the apostles. Barclay did believe in the fallen nature of man, due to our descent from Adam. But he thought that infants were innocent of sin, up until they had actually committed their first transgression of the law of God. And to back up that doctrinal fallacy, he mangles Ephesians 2 and verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. He's arguing that to be the children of wrath, we must first fulfil the desires of the flesh and the mind, 
a strange contortion of the text and deed, and a denial of the important doctrine of original sin, the understanding that we sin because we are by nature sinners. In Barclay's scheme, we are sinners because we sin, the very opposite of the biblical doctrine. Barclay stated, They are by nature the children of wrath, who walk according to the power of the prince of the air. Here's his exact words. They are by nature the children of wrath who walk according to the power of the prince of the air. And what of the all-important doctrine of justification? How is a sinner made right with God? Barclay is a universalist. He insists that Jesus died for all men, so therefore all men are saved. So what about the Quaker himself? What's the point of accepting Quakerism? Well, he says to the one who has received light from God, this knowledge of him implanted by the Holy Spirit, that brings great comfort and joy in believing. But then on the other hand, for those who are excluded from this knowledge by perhaps some inevitable accident, even they can be in heaven. Barclay states, This knowledge is not absolutely needful unto such from whom God himself hath withheld it. The modern equivalent can be found in the Quakers in Ireland website, where you can read, We believe that there is that of God, or the light of Christ, in every person which can be reached, though sometimes not without difficulty. So the light of Christ is in everyone. Now that's not a Christian belief, is it? We're dead in our trespasses and sins. There was a large Quaker influence around Lisburn and Lurgan, and at one time there had been Quaker settlements around the Broom Hedge area. There was an old discarded meeting house and graveyard on the road from Lisburn to McGabbery. That influence was heavily felt. I was once asked to chair an evangelistic meeting in that area, and during that meeting two young girls from the area were to sing. Of course, as normally happens, one of them felt that she had to introduce her song. She had to give a testimony of some sort before they sang. So she told the congregation that, and I quote, Jesus is inside everybody. All you have to do is to pull him out. I was so shocked. I had to explain to the congregation that what the girl had said was not by any means the gospel. Afterwards, I realized that she was brought up as a Quaker, and that was actually what she had been taught. But back to Barclay. And back to justification. For those who do receive the light of God, that light will produce in them, according to Barclay, a new spiritual birth, resulting in holiness and purity and righteousness. That spiritual birth, the work of Jesus Christ within us, then sanctifies us and justifies us in the sight of God. We are justified by revelation rather than by redemption. Once this spiritual birth has been worked in the heart, Barclay believes that it is possible to become perfect, to achieve sinlessness in this world. I quote, to be actually free from sinning and transgressing the law of God and in that respect, sinless. But Barclay had no time for a paid or professional ministry of any kind. He dismissed all such as deceivers and not true ministers and he regarded any form of worship in a formal sense appointed by man at a given place or time to be will worship 
even if it consists of praises and prayers and preaching. Such worship is to be denied and rejected and separated from as being an abominable idolatry. It's strange that the Quakers wanted to separate themselves from the singing of God's praise and prayers and the preaching of the word, and yet they don't want to separate themselves from same-sex marriages. How unusual is that? Baptism and communion are not practiced, both considered to be forms of worship used in biblical times as symbols of the spiritual experiences of the enlightened believer and now done away with since true knowledge of God has come with one's spiritual birth. Now in that rather sparse summary of original Quaker thought, well we we can't really call it a statement of faith or a creed, for it wouldn't be regarded as that by any Quaker. But in it we have Gnosticism, the reflection of an ancient heresy, a heresy wherein is claimed a special, peculiar inner knowledge of God that others do not have. In it the Bible is downgraded from being the inerrant, inspired and infallible word of God to merely being a secondary revelation secondary to subjective direct revelation we have universalism the liberal belief that everyone benefits from the light of god even if they're not christians and have you noticed that there is at least in the summary from Bettison, little reference to the objective finished work of christ on the cross for sinners bearing their punishment taking their deserved hell upon himself freeing them from God's wrath and making them just in the sight of a holy God. There's no vicarious atonement in Quaker belief. What of the modern Quaker movement? Is it any different from the pseudo-Christianity of Fox and Barclay? I think that the simple answer is that nothing much has changed. That any change has probably not been for the better. An easy reference to modern Irish Quakerism is their very own website, quakersinireland.ie. And if you're interested in finding out what Quakers believe, you really should read the information on that website. The first principle we'd find there on the Irish Quakers' beliefs page is a statement by Philip Jacob. Jacob says, In essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. So for a Quaker, what is an essential? Something that they must be united on. And what is a non-essential? Something where they can agree to disagree. In Reformed Christianity, we might refer to non-essential things as being adiophora, being secondary issues. But 
Reformed Christians will earnestly seek the scriptures to discover what is essential, especially what is the gospel, what teachings are saving matters. So we will read, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 4, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sin according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And when we read that, we will learn that we cannot disagree on certain basic facts of the gospel. The substitutionary atonement that is found in Christ. That God's only begotten Son died for our sins. That he rose bodily from the dead. That all of this was done according to the scriptures. That basic doctrinal position of biblical inspiration and authority. And all of this is indisputable basic Christian truth upon which our Christian fellowship depends. And there are other baseline biblical doctrines upon which we cannot afford to disagree. There are the doctrines of God and creation, the person and work of Christ, the personhood and work of the Holy Spirit, and so on. So while we may disagree on eschatology, for example, we can never disagree on any doctrine carrying biblical authority. But wait, that simply doesn't apply to the Quakers. For remember that they think that the Bible, the canon of Scripture, is only a secondary form of revelation. That it is secondary to the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer, as I would put it. Now what does the Bible tell us about the human heart? Well, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 tells us that God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So the Quakers are subjecting Scripture to this work, as they think of the Holy Spirit, the revelation and inspiration of God in their own heart. But how do they know it's God they're listening to? How do they know it's not just their own wicked heart? And so that anchor, the foundation of our faith, the objective nature of the scriptures is gone. And the result is that whatever wind of change blows, whatever direction secular society takes, the Quakers following probably the imaginations of their own deceitful hearts are simply blown about with it. The same-sex marriage decision is a prime example. They're bowing to the ever-growing pressures of the modern culture wars. They say, and I quote from their website, Quakers have a diversity of views on marriage between people of the same sex taking place in a meeting for worship because of the range of their theological, spiritual and biblical approaches. But we are united through love for one another. Well, we know what Paul would have said if he would have taken part in that debate, because it's already written down for us in Romans 12 and verse 2, where he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
And rather than simply express our love for those who believe in relationships that are abhorrent to God and which will lead to eternal loss, perhaps it would be better to heed Paul's advice of 2 Corinthians 6 and 17. Come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Separation from apostasy, alienation from the world, comfort in doing God's will, declared and decreed in his word, is the biblical motif for the Christian's fellowship with God. But let's go back to that Quaker website. They tell us that belief in God, in Jesus Christ and in the Spirit is the bedrock on which the religious society of friends is founded. And they go on to claim that the Bible is important to them. But that comes with a caveat. Coupled with our belief, they say, in direct communion with God. They then use the illustration of George Fox's experience of hearing a voice. It speaks of their distinctive form of worship on their website, where, and I quote, every friend has the responsibility for receiving insight, interpreting it, and passing it on to the meeting, if led by the Spirit to do so. A fine example of Gnosticism of receiving special knowledge of and from God, personal interpretation of scripture, total subjectivism and postmodernistic religion. It is all highly subjective and it suits well the postmodern mind, very well indeed, which may well be why the media is so drawn towards Quakerism. It's a universalistic religion that is based on good works. Well, what liberal journalist wouldn't want to promote that. The Quakers even state we would not dream of suggesting ours is the only true path to God, simply that it is the right one for us. So you can have your way to God, and I can have mine, and everyone else can have theirs. And of course, as Fox taught, they believe that there is that of God or the light of Christ in every person which can be reached. In the wider Quaker movement, this statement is or can be more broadly interpreted to include a belief in a spiritually deadly universalism. One Quaker website, Quakers.org, states this quite openly. An 18th century American Quaker, John Woolman, wrote, There is a principle which is pure, placed in the human mind, which in different places and ages hath had different names. In whomsoever this principle takes root and grows, of what nation soever, they become brethren in the best sense of the expression. The website then goes on, Fox was a Christian, despite his rejection of the church of the priestly class, and so the nature of his initial revelation was that there is one even Christ Jesus that can speak to thy condition. But everybody's relation with spirit is different, and if you're put off by Christian rhetoric, spirit will likely frame its message to you in a different vocabulary, or even perhaps without words at all. Notice how the Holy Spirit's referred to there, without the definite article, and as an it, not a he. Spirit is simply some inanimate force. 
Okay, so we've looked at some of the statements of historical Quakerism and some of the statements contained on websites of modern Quakers. And let's ask the question again. Is the Quaker movement really Christian? Let's be clear. I don't believe for one moment that there's even an ounce of gospel in the Quakers. I think it's on a par with Unitarianism, where scripture is subjected to flawed human reason. Quakers subjecting scripture to flawed human experience is no better than Unitarians. There's no room for the message of the exclusive Saviour, Jesus Christ. There's no room for Peter's emphatic declaration in Acts 4 and 12, where he said, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. There's no substitutionary atonement. There's no biblical authority. There's no proper understanding of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. There's no attempt at separation from error, and there's no biblical underpinning of their ethics. There is nothing in Quakerism to commend it to us, or even to commend it to God, for the saving of the soul. Quakerism is, as those covenanters would have believed, as Alexander Peden would have stated, a damnable heresy. But then are there Christians within Quakerism? Now that's an entirely different matter. A number of years ago, one of the tricks pulled upon gullible ecumenists by radio interviews here in Northern Ireland was to ask them, do you think the Roman Catholic Church is a Christian church? Well, the stammering ecumenical clergyman would want to reply yes. But surprisingly, a good number of evangelicals balked at the question also. After all, nobody wants to be unpopular. But the real issue is that no church is perfect. We're all to some degree or another defective in our understanding of God and of his revealed truth. Yet there may be some people within those congregations who are, despite what they are being taught, simply trusting Christ as their Saviour and Lord. Some denominations like the Quakers are so defective as to be utterly worthless as a conduit of the saving message. But there still may be believers within those gatherings. And as Christians, we should be praying for them. We should be praying that they will see the error in what they are believing and that they will seek fellowship with other believers of sound belief, just as we pray for Roman Catholics and Unitarians and thus learn to grow in God and in the knowledge of his written word, which is objective truth. Psalmist, Psalm 119, says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.